Welcome investors to the Absolute Return Podcast, your source for stock market analysis, global macro musings, and hedge fund investment strategies. Your hosts, Julian Klamotko and Michael Kesslering, aim to bring you the knowledge and analysis you need to become a more intelligent and wealthier investor. This episode is brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. On today's show, we welcome special guest, SGen CEO, Andrejka Bernatova. SGen runs a $200 million SPAC focused on accelerating the shift towards a low-carbon, sustainable future. On the show, Andrejka discusses how she went from coming to the U.S. at the age of 15 alone with no knowledge of English, carrying just $100 in her pocket to later getting a job on Wall Street, how investment banking experience helped her as a CFO, her thesis behind the shift to a low-carbon future, what's in store for the oil and gas sector, and more. So with no further ado, here's our podcast on energy transition investing with SGen CEO, Andrejka Bernatova. Welcome, Andrejka from SGen to the show. How are you today? I'm doing well. Thank you, Julian. Yeah, it's awesome to have you on I uh, read a bit about your story, which is super interesting. You came to America at the age of 15 by yourself with no knowledge of English, carrying $100 in your pocket. Tell us about this experience. Well, um, hello, everyone, first of all, and it's a pleasure to be on this podcast. Very excited. Um, I am actually uh, speaking to you all today from my home town or really village, actually, where I came from. And yes, you are right, Julie, and I came to the U.S. Uh, at the age of 15. And really, this was shortly after the uh, fall of the Berlin Wall and, uh, you know, the uh, post-communist uh, transition in Eastern and Central European countries. And, um, you know, it was a very interesting story. I actually, uh, it was sort of a coincidence. I walked uh, home from school one day and I saw a poster advertising a study abroad in America with the beaches of California and the Twin Towers, actually, at that time. And so I sort of visualized myself. That's, uh, that's, where, I wanted, uh, that's where I wanted to be. And, uh, you know, growing up in a country or region where you essentially couldn't cross the borders, you know, 50 miles away from you uh, because we were behind the Iron, Cart- uh, Iron Curtain, it really incentivizes you to explore that much more when you actually can go and see the world. So I wanted to go all the way to America. I actually spent about eight months raising money, going from one businessman to another, uh, raising you know, $10, $50. Actually, the guy who gave me the most was actually, uh, I think about $1,000 was the most that I got, but it was really 10, 50 bucks uh, that I raised. Um, and uh, over the, the course of eight months, just biking um, before school and after school when I was 14, you know, in snow and rain and heat and um, uh, bought myself uh, sort of the airline ticket, went on exchange program to the US and it was just absolutely transformational for me. Um, I was an exchange student uh, in New Hampshire. Uh, I was hoping to be in New York City, ended up in the middle of the forest in New Hampshire with the most fabulous exchange family. Um, They really turned me from sort of uh, not having dreams to dreaming big, Uh, absolutely transformational. And they are my family to this day. I see them very often and they uh, really were able to uh, witness and appreciate the transformation uh, they've seen in me since 15 until my age now. 
And that formative experience raising money at the age of 14 to provide for that journey is perhaps a, a great segue to the capital markets, which, of course, you know, is all about raising money, finding investors, etc. You did end up on Wall Street after school with experience at firms like Credit Suisse, Blackstone, Morgan Stanley. What attracted you to the capital markets and how did you transition from an exchange student to working on Wall Street? Yeah, so I, you know, um, I was fortunate to uh, uh, to go to Harvard. Uh, I, I studied government there, and I realized uh, after you know four years at, at uh, the wonderful institution that Harvard is that I had no skill set. You know, my dream was always to change the world and make it a better place. And uh, uh, so I worked at the World Bank, and I worked for the president in the Czech Republic. And after these uh, couple of internships, I realized I actually need a hard skill set. And so that's really what drove me to Wall Street. I realized I need to, you know, have my way with, with numbers. I never opened Excel spreadsheet until I started at uh, Credit Suisse as an analyst, probably the worst analyst of the history of Credit Suisse, because it <laughs> took me much longer to actually realize how Excel works. Um, but uh, it was that that real drive, one for a real skill set and uh, really making sure that I can support myself, to be very honest. You know, I, I couldn't call my parents to... Uh, pay my credit card or to pay my phone bill ever in my entire life. And so uh, it was the ability to really uh, provide myself and, and get a hard skill set that drove me to these firms. Now, the one thing I learned from that experience was, you know, I always wanted to be surrounded by the smartest people I possibly can. I don't know how I got into, you know, Harvard. I don't know how I got into the boarding school before then. Uh, I, I don't know how I got to, you know, Credit Suisse or Blackstone, but Somehow I did, and uh, I was always surrounded by people who are better and smarter, and uh, and uh, that's always, even at this point, and you know, even more so at this point, you know, my my uh, goal from a daily sort of interaction perspective. So that's what drove me to um, to Wall Street. This podcast is brought to you by Accelerate, one of Canada's leading alternative investment solution providers. Do you want to hedge your investment portfolio and protect your nest egg from significant drawdowns? Look no further than the Accelerate Absolute Return Hedge Fund, a long-short equity ETF that trades under the ticker symbol HEDGE, H-D-G-E, on the TSX. HEDGE, your uncorrelated portfolio diversifier. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. And then once you're on Wall Street, you're in investment banking, what drew you to the energy sector? Yeah, so I, you know, it, it was very interesting, a very conscious decision, Mike. So I realized after a few years of Wall Street, so I was a couple of years at Credit Suisse, then I was a couple of years at uh, Blackstone Group, then I went to a sovereign wealth fund called Mubadala based in, in Abu Dhabi. And, and I realized all these pieces of the journey, I touched energy and infrastructure, but I never fully focused on it. And so I decided, again, this was, I was uh, my late 20s, maybe early 30s. I want to be a sector specialist. I don't want to be a finance generalist. Um, so that was a very conscious decision. And I looked at, you know, really my background. I realized I touched energy and infrastructure every step of the way um, and decided I love it. That's what I want to do. Um, you know, I had experience actually at Mubadala doing a lot of solar and wind projects. Uh, this was at a time, actually, when I made that conscious decision to go into infrastructure and, and energy when, uh, you know, the, the shale in the U.S. and Canada was booming, obviously. And so I wanted to be part of that uh, immense growth um, and build out of some, you know, very interesting uh, companies. So very conscious decision, actually. I didn't stumble upon it. I decided to be the specialist in a sector. And then 
once you had that investment banking experience, you did transition mm-hmm. into industry and you had roles with several energy companies, uh, specifically being the chief financial officer. How is that transition from Wall Street to industry? And what skill set did your capital markets experience, your investment banking ex- experience provide in that transition to industry? You know, I think, Julian, I mean, I, I think back at my life and I really believe that, uh, you know, the, the first two years of my career when I was at Credit Suisse were the absolute worst years of my life. Uh, you know, I, I didn't see the sunlight. Uh, it was 9 a.m. to 4 a.m. every single day, weekends, holidays, etc. So don't get me wrong. I never want to uh, have those uh, days back. Uh, <laughs> probably the only person on this planet who never wants their 20s back. But um, but. Uh, it just taught me incredible discipline. You know, to this day, I'm sort of a scary person uh, to work with for some people because one, I, I love what I do. So if you love what you do, you don't mind, you know, waking up at 4 a.m. and just, you know, being excited and doing something. So it's, um, but the discipline and those two years of just, you know, uh, just plowing through and no matter how much pain you are in, I uh, just uh, were incredibly important to me and opened so many doors for me. So that's number one. When I transitioned into industry, I basically spent the first half a year making sure that people realize that I'm not some, you know, big Wall Street person coming from Blackstone and Morgan Stanley, that I'm, you know, one of the people building the company. And so I spent the first half a year just, um, you know, uh, playing pranks on our chief engineering officer and uh, going out for, you know, lunches and beers with our commercial guys and really making sure that I integrate into the, you know, into the business and make people realize that I'm one of the people, I'm not just some outsider, you know, coming in with a a fancy suit on. And and, and what was helpful in that experience is, you know, since an early age, I basically lived in so many countries and I made a really conscious effort to move in different, you know, social strata, in different industries, you know, people from cities, from villages, you know, remote areas, wealthy, very poor, just, you know, very intensely making sure that I dive into very different environments. And that sort of, you know, skill set that I, you know, built over decades really of my life really helped me get integrated into industry and being able to talk to the field guy, being able to talk to the engineers, being able to talk to the scientists, right? Um, that was just a, 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 I loved it. I enjoyed it. And, and honestly, Julian, when I started at Pentex was the first corporate experience, I felt like this is my place. This is where I need to be. I totally get it. And, you know, to this day, and even this in the seat where I am today, that ability to make a connection with many different people and loving it, really enjoying it, actually, not faking it. So you can tell I'm a <laughs> pretty direct person, was something that was like, this is me and this is my place. So um, I made a conscious effort to really get to know the people and, and be just a normal person. And in that uh, transition to industry, and I know many of reformed investment bankers who made that transition, you get a life back, as you indicated, starting out your career as an investment banking analyst. You believe that work is 80 to 100 hours a week or more. And you think about the normal nine to five as a part time gig. Now, fast forward to today. You founded a special purpose acquisition company, SGen Acquisition Corp. What's your objective behind this newest iteration that you're on? 
So a number of, couple of important uh, sort of key points. Uh, as I mentioned, I was, you know, part of the oil and gas uh, shale uh, growth, and that was an incredibly exciting time. Um, and we've built some very cool companies. We took them public. Uh, you know, we sold them. We made a lot of acquisitions. We raised a lot of capital. We, uh, frankly, made mistakes, right? But we learned a lot from that experience. And so about three now, probably four years ago, uh, I sort of looked at the universe. I looked at the, you know, going back to Mike's question, why focus on um, energy and infrastructure? I took a step back and I do this exercise sort of every two or three years, by the way. And I uh, wanted to recalibrate. I wanted to see where is the energy infrastructure world going? And so I went on a little uh, private roadshow, if you will, with all sorts of investors, private, public, small, big infrastructure guys, uh, you know, hedge funds, private equity, GPs, LPs, et cetera. And I spoke to about 80 investors at that time and asked them a question, what they think about energy and what they think about infrastructure over my lifetime. I care about the next 30 years, not about the next 10 years. And there was a very unilateral sort of, uh, um, you know, sound uh, or voice that uh, was saying the transition energy is uh, really becoming a very prevalent uh, movement. Uh, I was in solar and wind about uh, now 12 plus years ago at uh, Mubadala when I left that space. And, uh, and when I sort of, you know, did a little bit of that investor feedback and frankly, some soul searching too. I mean, I really believe that, you know, transition energy, I have three little kids and my sons are asking me, you know, why don't I drive an EV and why my car is not autonomous and, you know, why our house is so big and, and it should be more efficient and, you know, et cetera. So, so um, those are real questions, right? That's the question. That, that's, that's who we are catering to is to my kids' generations. And so I sort of opened my eyes and I realized, you know, this is kind of interesting. Um, this seems like smoking cigarettes in the 80s, right? If, if you watch any movies, just watching some of our old communist movies in the you know, Czech Republic, and everyone smoked a cigarette that was very normal. You see the House of Gucci, everyone smokes a cigarette there. That is not normal. That is not socially acceptable anymore. Um, you know, throwing out trash in the streets, that is not acceptable anymore, right? Um, versus that was acceptable 20 years or 30 years ago. And I believe the same is happening to energy transition or energy. It's not going to be socially acceptable to be wasteful. It's, it's going to be socially acceptable and praised on to really be preserving our planet. So um, I, you know, wanted to be part of that movement. And I wanted to add the skill set I have from traditional energy. And I wanted to be the conduit between traditional energy and new energy. So it was a personal decision and it was also a feedback from sort of the investor base that I, very broad investor base that I investigated. Then why SGEN? I spent three years, you know, I was a CFO at a transition energy company. I was also advising a number of companies in the space from grid arena to autonomous driving to, uh, you know, EV charging across commercial, capital structure issue, IPO preparedness, et cetera including uh, some DSPAC uh, situations. And I realized there is just an incredible growth in the space. There is an incredible need for capital. And, you know, the companies are in a stage where they need the expertise that we've built in, frankly, the oil and gas sector. And they, you know, may need to avoid some of the mistakes that we make in a very similar sector. I believe the oil and gas sector is just the most translatable skill set into transition energy because it is the technology meets capital. 
And that's very unique. Very, you know, they're, they're not necessarily, uh, you know, the other sectors that are as comparable. Plus, it's very entrepreneurial, right? Oil and gas is very entrepreneurial as well as transition energy. So these three criteria were essentially, you know, key ingredients for me to say this sector needs me. I fundamentally decided to uh, go into the space. And three, I believe that the SPAC capital, if used in the right manner, is a very efficient way to bring some very interesting and very impactful companies to the public arena. So that's why I decided, one, for transition energy, and two, uh, for SPAC as the uh, vehicle to, um, to do that. And now, a word from our sponsor, Accelerate, one of Canada's most innovative and fastest-growing alternative investment solution providers, with a suite of institutional-caliber alternative ETFs for investors seeking diversification and long-term performance. The Accelerate Arbitrage Fund, symbol ARB on the TSX, is the world's first SPAC-focused ETF, with a diversified portfolio of SPAC and merger arbitrage opportunities in an easy-to-use, low-cost ETF. The Accelerate Arbitrage Fund ETF trades under the symbol ARB on the Toronto Stock Exchange. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. And, and it, is it those reasons why you think that a SPAC vehicle is just a lot better way for these energy transition companies to go public versus a an IPO or a direct listing? Yes, that's a great question, Mike. Uh, you know, I've prepared four companies for a, a public avenue. Two went public. Um, ultimately, it's it is uh, an IPO. is a very long process. Uh, you get all the employees very excited. As much as you may think that you are filing confidentially, everyone will know. And you, at best, will have to wait. But really, in a realistic scenario, you may never be able to access the public markets. So yes, I do believe that the DSPAC vehicle is just a much more efficient way for high growth companies that may have just got on the really important contract and they need to cater that contract. If you get caught, and that's what we see quite a bit actually, Mike, is it's not, you know, we are not focused on companies that are early stage, pre-revenue style companies. We believe they still need to mature in the private arena. But we are focused on the companies that got that big contract with a very blue chip company. And that blue chip company will be looking to that uh, company to really be able to grow with them. And in order to do that, of course, you need your product, but you also need capital. And so, yes, I do believe that the SPAC vehicle is an extremely valuable vehicle to, to take them public. Now, I think that there's a huge differentiation in the SPAC universe, and, and we've obviously seen that over the course of the past, uh, you know, even few months. The differentiation is enormous. So I think that it's, it's really important for the companies that are considering a DSPAC transaction is to partner with the right, right uh, folks, with people who've gone through that exercise before, who've been operators before, who are aligned with the company, who are not there for just to, you know, for the quick transaction and kind of move on with their lives. So that's the thesis that we have. We really want to be partners for long term, both from a capital perspective, but as well as, you know, governance, helping folks, uh, you know, with commercial contracts, with M&A, with governance, with, you know, board members, uh, obviously uh, building out back office. That's, that's obviously our bread and butter. So being there for them. So I think if you just provide the SPAC as a shell and you really don't have experience, you know, that's relevant to that transaction, I don't think that's a useful tool. It needs to be the right SPAC with the right ingredients, the right, you know, capital that's aligned in the right way 
that truly can be a partner for for your journey. That's a really good point because those that don't have those additional characteristics and and value add to the underlying company that they're bringing public, that is very commoditized, it seems, with so many SPACs in the market today. So point noted, I was wondering if you could expand on your thoughts on the current market environment from a a macro perspective. How are you seeing things out there? Well, if somebody told me it's going to be so challenging, uh, you know, six months ago, I would not believe them. So it's certainly a... uh, you know, very exciting uh, ride there, Julian. Uh, it's frankly a grind. <laughs> uh, you know, it's it's a lot of work, but it's that's great because we are prepared to do that. It's it's you the um, you know we've looked at about six hundred companies wow. as, as part of our SPAC. Uh, we probably talked to two hundred and fifty companies, and so a very wide cast. We did that intentionally because we wanted to make sure that we are targeting the right sector and the right type of companies that we uh, promise to our public investors during our roadshow. Uh, it's obviously very complex. Uh, the, the hurdle for the quality of companies went uh, significantly higher. Uh, so those companies that are able to actually make it to the other side and be a successful DSPAC uh, are those who have very robust revenues, who hopefully have EBITDA, who have very strong management that uh, wants to be public for the right reason. It's not a spur of the moment situation. And they realize the implications of that, right? They realize we have to think about meeting our quarterly earnings estimates as basic as it gets, right? And that's why most of the sector has been a, a really, uh, you know, under uh, has been challenged because those companies were frankly not prepared for that at all. It was just too early. So I, I sort of like where we are. I mean, today is a bloodshed. Every day is, a, you know, it's, it's in the reds. And that was necessary. So from a perspective in terms of competition with other SPACs, that has toned down significantly. Uh, You know, uh, the conversations that are taking place now are bilateral conversations. They are not these SPAC offs, sort of highest bidder takes the the company, which never should have happened in the first place. I think uh, all of us in the SPAC universe should have been a little bit more um, disciplined. They should have known better, to be honest. So I like that you, you really are now you know, high grading the SPAC universe. So we're not competing with the 600 other SPACs, right? We're competing with very small amount of high quality SPACs. So that's number one. Number two, I think uh, the the CEOs and their backers are now realizing that they are in, in it also for a long run. It's not a, you know, quick flip. And so that alignment from a valuation perspective is very interesting. So valuations have certainly come down uh, versus, uh, you know, 2021. And I think you need to actually align your own capital in addition to the SPAC. You need to be able to bring additional uh, capital to the table that aligns you to be with the company, you know, longer term. Uh, so, but it's it's tough. You have to use many tools at your, at your disposal. You know, the pipe market is, is extremely thin. You have to think about some, you know, non-redemption tools, et cetera. But certainly you have to think about making sure that you have your own capital in addition to the uh, to the SPAC and um, and you have good relationship with investors, right? We have a very strong investor base. I think that's what differentiates us in, in our SPAC. Uh, many investors who've been with us, you know, at least one or a couple of times uh, before. And so we have personal relationships there. And so having that on, on the other side, on the, on the public side is also, I think, key for a successful DSPAC. It's very challenging, but it's for a good thing. So the only the best companies uh, are, you know, uh, coming to the market. And that's the thing about 
hard things or these ideas, if they're easy, everyone would do them. And that's where you bring your unique skill set and forecasts and the sector focus. Now, speaking on that sector focus, where do you foresee the energy industry going? Specifically, you mentioned oil and gas, this energy transition. How do you envision that playing out over the next sort of 10 to 20 years? Yeah, so it's, you know, my, my thesis actually, Julian, uh, has not changed uh, for the past three years. It it's only has gotten stronger. So, um, you know, obviously, um, if oil at uh, basically 120 bucks and gas is at basically 10 bucks, um, I would have never thought that it would ever happen, especially, with, you know, the gas prices. But I'm sitting right now in, you know, in the Czech Republic. I uh, went across Europe. I was in Spain and Austria earlier, uh, or I guess, yeah, earlier this month. And it is absolutely amazing to be in Europe. It's a enormous wind and solar field everywhere. And, and I see, you know, I go pretty frequently. I go once every year. So I sort of see the incremental changes are, are just enormous. Now, uh, what you see in, in, specifically in Europe and, you know, probably Asia too, is my guess, is um, sort of on the, uh, you know, on the ground is the geopolitical situation that we have uh you know, happening at this point is uh, turning the green movement into a security movement. So today is obviously, you know, uh, Putin is on the agenda and that's the threat. Uh, tomorrow it can be, you know, um, the Middle East, the day after it could be South American countries and the day after it could be the United States, right? Um, and so wherever you look, if you're sitting in Europe or in Asia, you're dependent on someone that you absolutely cannot control. Right. So, um, and, you know, what's, what's really interesting is you see the, obviously there's a lot of, you know, Europeans as well as obviously U.S. and globally, there has been an enormous push from governments, what you've seen over the past two years, to, to, you know, for, for green movement, greening essentially, decarbonization, what you've seen in the past couple of years, including the United States, obviously, you've seen decarbonization in the commercial arena. What you are really seeing now is... I wouldn't even call it decarbonization. You just uh, see, a, I need energy independence from an end customer level. So I give you an example. My parents are about to retire and they are going to take my, their entire pension savings and they are going to buy themselves essentially a heating system that makes them self-sufficient, but also by coincidence greener, right? Because they can't, they can't uh, obviously pay the enormous gas bill that, that they're about to be hit with uh, next year or not have access to to uh, heat uh, this winter. So what the end consumer in Europe and, and Asia is looking at is my you know operating expenses are so enormous all of a sudden with the commodity prices. My risk from a security perspective is completely unpredictable from a day-to-day perspective. And not just today, anytime in the future, even if the Ukraine improves. So what are they doing? They're just plowing capex into being self-sufficient. And the byproduct of that is, is, is having actually greener sources of energy, obviously. So I'm a huge believer of, um, you know, it's, uh, you have pushes essentially from all perspectives. And I'm not even talking about the social perspectives of my you know, kids, obviously, finding it unacceptable that I'm driving a gasoline-fueled car. Um, so uh, all these pushes, but really is economic and the uh, security uh, pressure that's on end customers in Europe and Asia that are supercharging the green energy uh, growth. So you have this energy transition thesis, your experience, you launched this SPAC, SGEN acquisition. Talk to 
250 companies, uh, looked at 600, so very active. Any sort of insights, opportunities, challenges in terms of running this SPAC for the past few months? Um, you have to have a lot of stamina. So uh, I um, I uh, used to run ultramarathons, uh, and uh, I have to tell you that taught me so much. So, uh, you know, I, I ran this Marathon de Saba, it was 180-mile Ultra marathon in the Sahara Desert. And I mentioned that because, you know, when things get tough, I look back at that day three when I was pretty sure that I was going to die, you know, alone in the Sahara Desert. Um, and that was my choice to do that. That I'm like, you know what? We're just going to keep on going. And it's tough, but, you know, we'll, we'll make it happen. So I'm actually very optimistic. I am glad the market is bleeding because, you know, hopefully when we'll come to the market, it's, it's, it's going to look better. And it, it needed that. I, I don't like sort of, you know, going into a hyped environment. So it's been it's been incrementally, you know, incredibly challenging because the bar is higher and the environment is tougher. And that's what we like because we run ultra marathons. We don't run marathons and we don't, you know, run 400 meters. And uh, and we ultimately believe that, um, you know, there, there are companies that are really neat and that will add a lot of value uh, being in the public market. Well, a great attitude. I love the uh, tenacity and determination drive that you have in terms of running SGEN. So thanks so much, Andreka, for coming on the show today. We'll be monitoring your story closely here and wishing you the best of luck. Thank you for sharing with us today. Thank you, Julian. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate it. All right. Take care. Thanks for tuning in to the Absolute Return Podcast. This episode was brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. The views expressed in this podcast are the personal views of the participants and do not reflect the views of Accelerate. No aspect of this podcast constitutes investment, legal, or tax advice. Opinions expressed in this podcast should not be viewed as a recommendation or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any securities or investment strategies. The information and opinions in this podcast are based on current market conditions and may fluctuate and change in the future. No representation or warranty, expressed or implied, is made on behalf of Accelerate. As to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained this podcast. Accelerate does not accept any liability for any direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage suffered by any person as a result of relying on all or any part of this podcast, and any liability is expressly disclaimed.